6 o'clock on the dot. And welcome to WORT's local news for Thursday, September 7th. I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. And I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. In tonight's news, jazz bassist Richard Davis is dead at the age of 93. We'll remember his life and work. And we'll hear from him in his own words from the WORT archive. Plus, a Republican bill in the state legislature would legalize a Schedule One drug. And in the second half, we'll hear more from award-winning producer DJ Payne One. And we'll learn how to get started in a career in the trades. Plus, the nostalgia of Wiener Whistles. This is Stacy Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. State Senator Melissa Agard of Madison announced today that she supports the Workers' First Labor Package. The measure drafted by the Legislative Democratic Labor Workforce seeks to repeal a number of policies passed by former Governor Scott Walker. The package was announced earlier today by Assembly legislators. Representative Katrina Shanklin of Stevens Point said the bills follows a historic hot labor summer and would make it easier for workers to organize. Representative Christine Signicki of Milwaukee criticized Wisconsin's 20 to 15 right to work legislation that allows private sector workers to decide whether or not to pay union dues. Lawmakers are debating a number of bills proposed by state Republicans to address the state's child care shortage. The measures would create a loan program for child care center res- renovations and allow families to deduct deposits to child care savings accounts from their state income tax. Most child care advocacy groups don't support the suggested changes. They have health and safety concerns about a proposed increase in the staff-to-child ratio. The State Department of Children and Families said the new rules would put Wisconsin out of line with national child care accrediting bodies, and the bill does not address concerns about low wages for employees. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports that Governor Tony Evers is expected to veto the bills. He and other Democrats are pushing instead for continued funding for Child Care Counts, a program that helped keep child care centers open during the pandemic and is set to run out of funds by 2024. The new director of Wisconsin State Climatology Office says there is no doubt that natural disasters are becoming more common. Steve Vavaris has previously researched with the UW-Madison's Center for Climate Research and is now sharing climate data for Wisconsinites. His new role ranges from giving farmers insight into rainfall trends to helping mitigate damage to local communities. Vavaris told Channel 3000 that, quote, we have plenty of evidence to show that extreme weather is more common and more expensive. This year, Wisconsinites saw saw extreme rainfall in the spring the wettest in state history, followed by a record-breaking heat in the summer and and a drought that is continuing into the fall. The office's data is helping gain insight into weather whiplash when weather patterns rapidly shift from one extreme to another. Dozens of residents near Snowden Lake in Oneida County are finding PFAS, forever chemicals, in their water supply. Snowden Lake and Wellwater in nearby Stella has tested as having 36,000 parts per trillion of PFAS. The federally federally recommended standard is only four parts per trillion, making it likely one of the highest concentrations in the country. 
The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports that the Department of Natural Resources has sampled over 100 private wells, with 49 tested as having levels of PFAS above the state limit. The agency is still determining how widespread the contamination is. They have already taken dozens of samples in the area from the Pelican River, the Wisconsin River, and other small lakes. PFAS chemicals are man-made substances used for their water and stain-resistant qualities, and the chemicals have been linked to several types of cancer, low birth weights, and harm to immune and reproductive systems. Lapses in afternoon school bus services prompted extraordinary measures Wednesday at three Madison schools, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. At Lakeview Elementary School, teachers walked about 40 students home after learning at about 1.30 p.m. that bus service that day had been canceled. The principal at Senate Middle School took the wheel of a bus to transport some students there, while Madison Memorial High School's athletic director piloted a bus for Leopold Elementary students. Momentum is building for conversion of three blocks of State Street into a pedestrian mall. The Common Council voted this week in favor of studying the prospects for an experimental zone from the Library Mall to West Gorham Street. Merchants in the area who were contacted by Channel 3000 spoke out in favor of the plan. District 2 Alder Juliana Bennett said, however, that reaction from her constituents has been mixed. Bennett sponsored a resolution in July advancing the idea. The proposed experiment awaits a final vote by the council in the coming months, Channel 3000 reports. An online program at Edgewood College would help ease the shortage of licensed teachers in Wisconsin, according to WMTV. The accelerated teacher residency program is intended to help people already employed by school districts acquire the credentials to teach. That, that would include professionals such as librarians, counselors, and social workers. The program could also benefit people who are teaching with provisional licenses, says Michael Meissen, Edgewood's Director of Education. He estimates that about 3,000 educators in the state are teaching with emergency permits. And Madison's ban on pet pigs could be lifted later this month after the Board of Health approved an ordinance amendment that will go to the City Council for final approval. Under the amendment, city residents may own one pig as long as it's under 24 inches tall at the shoulder, weighs less than 300 pounds, and meets all immunization requirements, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. The animal must also be microchipped and leashed when off of the owner's property. The poster child for this ordinance is Rudy, a Juliana miniature pig owned by a Westside couple. Rudy's status as a city resident became uncertain after someone squealed that he was in the city illegally. The city council will take up the amendment on September 19th. And now on to today's top stories. Renowned jazz musician Richard Davis passed away yesterday at the age of 93. After spending several years in hospice care, his daughter, Persia Davis, confirmed to WORT today. Now local musicians and former colleagues are remembering his legacy. WORT news producer Faye Parks has the story. Richard Davis was born in Chicago in 1930 and quickly discovered a passion for music. He 
He studied double bass as a teen and was eventually a member of Chicago Youth Symphony Orchestras. For 23 years, he lived in New York City and made a name for himself as one of the world's premier bass players. From 1967 to 1974, Downbeat International Critics Poll named him Best Bassist. In 1977, he settled down in Madison, becoming a professor of bass, jazz, and ensemble at UW, where he taught for decades. His first graduate student, Peter Dominguez, spoke with WORT in 2018, saying, He came from New York, and he had that heavy New York accent, and it was hard to understand him. And, but, but he always did a thing where he would, he would grab your bass, anything that you were playing, and he would immediately tear it up. And then, you know, he would, he would just play it <laughs> flawlessly and then hand it back to you. He says, and he'd always say, yeah, and I don't even know your bass. You know, and you just go, oh, how do you, <laughs> how do you respond to that? But it really taught me, it really taught me that, that I had to get down to business. Davis and Dominguez created the Richard Davis Foundation for Young Bassists in the 90s. The foundation holds annual master classes for musicians between the ages of 3 and 18. More than once, Davis hosted the conference in his own home. Davis was also an advocate in the Madison community. In 1998, he created the Retention Action Project, which facilitated open dialogues on race and culture. In 2000, he founded Madison's Institutes for the Healing of Racism, which aims to raise consciousness about the history and pathology of racism and foster racial unity. Jessie Dirkman is a facilitator at the Institutes. She says that Davis was an invaluable resource. He was just always so generous with his time and his stories. A band leader in his own right, Davis played with a bevy of top jazz musicians. A small sampling, Eric Dolphy, Elvin Jones, Archie Shepp, Dorothy Ashby, Roland Kirk, Pharaoh Sanders. And he performed with musicians outside the jazz world, including Bruce Springsteen, Van Morrison, Frank Sinatra, and Barbara Streisand. Victor DiLorenzo, a founding member of Milwaukee's own Violent Femmes, also performed with Davis. DiLorenzo shared some stories about the bassist with WORT earlier today. And I'll never forget Richard was talking with me one time, and he said, Victor, um, I'm glad that you're a part of this group, but I have to ask you, what is it that you do? He was referring to me playing on stage because I was playing with brushes and it was kind of quiet what I was doing that he couldn't really hear me because there was another drummer and another percussionist featured in the group. So he was, he was honestly asking, what is it that you do? <laughs> According to DiLorenzo, Davis was an incredible performer because he was constantly learning. He was a gifted musician in that he was a very studied musician and had a, 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 great, a great knowledge of the jazz idiom but also he was known and respected as a musician that could play with any any other musician. He just had that, that wide open kind of a personality. Listeners who want to share their memories of Davis or show support to his loved ones can visit his obituary on memorialsource.com. No public memorial service is scheduled. 
Persia Davis tells WORT the family plans to dispose of his ashes privately in accordance with his wishes. She adds that if you'd like to pay tribute, you can donate to the Richard Davis Foundation for Young Bassists to support the next generation of jazz musicians. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. Chuck France, host of Journeys into Jazz from 2 to 5 p.m. on Wednesday afternoons here on WORT, tells us he'll be airing a memorial show two Wednesdays from now on September 20th. Meanwhile, Richard Davis joined former Buzz host Hayward Simmons on the air in 2016. They talked about his career as an international performing musician and professor of bass, jazz history, and combo improvisation at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. In this interview, we get to hear Davis's story in his own words. Good morning. How are you doing, Richard? Good, good, good. Awesome. This has been a great morning, you know, to get a chance to be here with uh, some of my favorite people on WRT. Yes, but you have become one of my favorite people. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I appreciate that. I'll appreciate that. So the reason I wanted to have you on this morning, uh, Richard, is just to have you share the richness of of your life and the experiences you've had. From what I understand, you were born in Chicago. Music is what I think some of the world knows you for. How did you end up in a place of being such a talented musician, or how did music become important to you to begin with? I was raised in a musical neighborhood where I lived in Chicago. The South Side was lots of musicians I could hear going through the alleys, guys playing old funky butt, blues, guitar, and saxophones. And then I went to high school about a mile away from where I lived where there was a great music director there named Walter Diet. And so many people came out of that school. I guess the most popular one is Nat King Cole. Hmm. Yeah, so we had we just had a you know a flow of talent going on, and I wanted to become a part of that. I did. <laughs> <laughs> now, did it did it come naturally or easy to you? I mean, I, I imagine growing up in Chicago in those times, it wasn't necessarily easy to get around. Was it easy for you to pursue your dream, or what major hurdles did you have? Well, I had so much support from my family that I didn't notice any hurdles in the beginning of my playing the bass. I noticed racial issues around 18 and 19 years old. Mm -hmm. I was told by my musical director to uh, play symphonic music also. And that's when I noticed the racial elements coming in. They didn't want any blacks in the orchestras. So when I would audition, they would close shop before they'd see me. That was not a hurdle. I consider it, in a sense, a motivation. Yes. Because I knew I could play the music as good as anybody else. So they didn't stand in my way. So you mentioned that you had strong support. Mom, aunts, uncles, who was there for you? Because, you know, in today's time, I think we see a a stretching of our families, right? The moms in Madison are working, dads are where they are, and the kids are kind of out there. Who who was supporting you? How How did this happen? Well, my cousin, who was eight years older than me, encouraged me to play the bass. And she was a terrific artist herself. She would paint and draw pictures that won prizes through the city. And she would encourage me to play the bass. Matter of fact, she bought me my first music book. 
And then I had support from mom and dad, too, because they never interfered with what I was doing. And they only said, don't hang out in taverns. Watch those fast women. <laughs> yeah. That's the only thing they said. Fast women and drinking. Mm-hmm. So uh, I used to practice all day long. And my father was working nights in his restaurant. He'd sleep during the day. But he never complained about me playing the bass. Now, you talk about growing up as a young man and seeing race and different things show up. How did you get through that? How did you have the mental focus when you saw those things to adjust in a way that was beneficial? Well, I had good teachers. My high school director, some of my other teachers, some white, some black, and they uh, gave me tools to work with things. And my father was uh, quite a physical figure in the neighborhood, and I saw how he walked amongst the people, how proud he was, and how people were just proud to be in his company. And I was raised by foster parents, and that was a blessing. They helped me through a lot of that because uh, my mother told me, never look a white woman in the eye. That was considered rape by eye. So I became very aware of the differences in white and black at an early age. What brought you to Madison? How did you end up here? We fast forward to Madison. How did that happen? How do we now have the great Richard Davis residing here in Madison, Wisconsin? Well, I had a need to share my teaching experiences with younger generation. And I learned enough and had equipped myself with enough experiences to share with younger people. And that's what brought me here. And the university just happened to call me, inviting me to come out here and teach. And how long did you teach at the university? I'm still teaching. <laughs> still teaching? Good gracious. So you must really love what you do. I do. I do love what I do. What do you talk to the kids about over there now? And, and how do you still connect with them after all these years? I love young people because I consider them my teachers. I learn from them by what they need. Then I have to dig down in my uh, treasure chest and see if I can come up with some solutions. And I not only teach them the basics about the instruments, but I have classes that I also teach about the life about the instrument. So I teach them a lot about life. I see this one and the same. Yes, sir. So learning from the youth. So often, you know, I we get a chance to work in the school system, and I see the, the empathetic party, the, the teachers, the instructors, and really want the kids to listen to them and teach them. So a, a note from you might be to also learn and listen to the children, huh? I listen to them all the time. Matter of fact, when I listen to them, then I know what to teach. <laughs> <laughs> and students like it when you put them in charge. I don't believe in controlling the whole thing. I like to put them in charge because that's what they're going to have to do for the rest of their life. That seems to be a, a lesson to learn, to be willing to, that, that's a trusting, humble place to be. Were you always that way? I guess so. Have <laughs> you describe it? So now you're still teaching, you're teaching in the schools, and with all the teaching you've done, why are you teaching in your living room? You mean the race group? Yes, sir. Because it's convenient for me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to go anywhere. I like the home atmosphere. And everybody you know, always tells me, thanks for sharing your home with us. So I let them know that this is the home to share and to heal and to learn together. And I'm available anytime. Matter of fact, one woman who, when the meeting was over at 8 o'clock usually, she stayed here until 1030. Wow. Talking. 
and she wanted to know a lot about racism in Canada and this and that. So I called my friend in Canada, and they talked for about an hour on the phone. Hmm. So I have a, I have an encyclopedia, a ready uh, library, and the guy she was talking to is a Canadian, black Canadian, and uh, he's the one that wrote the book. So whenever somebody asks me a question, I always go to the top. Yeah, I heard you say call them. Just call them. Yeah, call them. And they're very happy to hear from you. <laughs> wow. Wow. So if you got somebody you need to talk to, so there's uh, Oprah's on my list, and there's some other people, I should just call them. Just give them a call, man. So as we start to wrap this thing up, with all the travels and all the music that you've seen and done and been a part of, if there were one or two moments that really stood out, what would one of them be? Well, working with Igor Stravinsky, and when I finished the three concerts with him, he walked over and put his hand on my shoulder. And I just thought, I froze. If you can allow me to mention one more. Please. Uh, working with Sarah Vine. Hmm. And Eric Dolphy, those were my universities of learning. I want to give you an opportunity. There were a message you could share with the young and the old in Madison about healing racism. I would say the main thing is study, to read many, many books, to enlarge your peripheral knowledge of life itself. Also, be kind and passionate and forgiving to everyone that you cross paths with. And thirdly, be active in being a part of the transformation of racism. Each individual has a strong part, and if they think others are going to do it, that causes a problem. That problem will never change. That's all, that's all i got to say about that. So if you could list something that you were thankful for, appreciative of, we would be honored to hear it. When my mother died having me in childbirth, I was picked up by two gracious, fantastic people, my foster parents, Eleanor and Robert Johnson, and they raised me with love to no end. Very fortunate. We really enjoyed having you on. You're definitely a friend of Madison, a friend of music, a friend of the world, and a friend of ours. Well, thank you. And on to other news. A bill introduced before the Wisconsin State Assembly this week would legalize Kratom a stimulant made from the leaves of a tree native to Southeast Asia. A similar bill failed to pass in 2022, but the bill's Republican authors are back at it. Reporter Shayla Gabler has more. If you've been on the edge of your seat waiting for Wisconsin lawmakers to legalize marijuana, you should also be paying attention to the story of a lesser-known medicinal plant, Kratom. This week, State Representatives Murphy, Brooks, and Mako along with Senators Cabral-Guevara and Felskowski, all Republicans, introduced Assembly Bill 393 to legalize the manufacture, distribution, delivery, and possession of Kratom. Kratom has been illegal in Wisconsin since 2013, and it's listed in state statute as a Schedule I controlled substance, along with substances like heroin, marijuana, and peyote. Kratom most often takes the form of a powder, capsule, or tea, that is derived from the leaves of a tree native to Southeast Asia, where it is used in herbal medicine. People use kratom for its stimulant-like effects, mood enhancement, and pain relief. Wisconsin is just one of six states that explicitly bans kratom, and federally, the substance isn't regulated. The Federal Drug Administration advises that the drug isn't appropriate for use as a dietary supplement 
and also admits that there is inadequate information about its side effects. Still, an estimated 1.7 million Americans aged 12 and up were estimated to have used the drug in 2021. Heidi Sakura is one. A retired nurse practitioner, she says Kratom makes it possible for her to stay healthy and active and manage her chronic pain from brain and spinal cord surgery. But because Kratom is illegal in Wisconsin, she has to drive hours to Illinois to get it. At first, I was able to come to Illinois, take the Kratom, increase my activity, and really get on the road to recovery. And then I'd have to go back home, and literally, I was able to do half. And (laughs) it was like that for, you know, a year. And finally, you know, I started staying more and more in Illinois. For Sakura, taking Kratom is a safer alternative to the opioids, NSAIDs, or Tylenol, given their addictive properties, long-term side effects, and her own drug sensitivities. Some people even use Kratom to manage drug withdrawal symptoms or as an alternative to opioids. A user study by researchers at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine found that 41% of their respondents used Kratom for opioid replacement. Others used the substance for pain relief, anxiety, and depression treatment. Senator Rachel Cabral Guevara, a Republican from Appleton, is a co-author of the bill. She says there's good reason to legalize Kratom. And even Congressman Mark Pocan urged the passage of a 2021 bill to legalize the substance. From Cabral Guevara's experience as a nurse practitioner, people can benefit from Kratom's medicinal effects. Well, the reason I support this bill is because other states have legalization of Kratom, but it also is a natural way to manage pain relief and have found that in many of my patients that have pain from um, injuries, from cancer and so forth, that they have found this beneficial. Like the bill's co-sponsor, Senator Mary Felskowski, Cabral Guevara supports the legalization of medicinal and eventually recreational marijuana. And this is in keeping with widespread public support. But with Kratom, some groups, including doctors and law enforcement, are opposed. The Badger State Sheriff's Association, Wisconsin Medical Society, Wisconsin Sheriff's and Deputy Sheriff's Association opposed an earlier version of the current bill, which failed to pass in 2022, despite heavy lobbying from the American Kratom Association, a consumer advocacy group based in Virginia. According to online lobby reporting records, the group has spent at least $200,000 lobbying for legalization from 2021 to this year. The bill provides guidelines for the regulation of Kratom products. It would restrict the inclusion of other ingredients in Kratom products, would require products to be registered, and would make selling Kratom to those under 21 illegal. Matt Haddow, a representative of the American Kratom Association, says these regulatory measures are essential. As long as it's used responsibly, and if the products are manufactured and labeled properly, it's like any other substance, like caffeine that you consume, or even a bottle of water, it needs to be regulated and consumed in a way that's safely done. So that's what this bill will do. It's long overdue. It decriminalizes the possession and use of Kratom in Wisconsin. Decriminalization and regulation would become tools for harm reduction, says Haddo, and are part of a larger effort on the part of the American Kratom Association of correcting the record on Kratom's effects. In 2021, a similar bill passed out of committee but failed to pass the state assembly after Democrats included an amendment that would tie legalization of Kratom to the legalization of marijuana. 
I asked Senator Cabral Guevara if she thought the bill would be a gateway to legalizing marijuana overall, and she said. I think so. Very much so. And I hope so. The bill, AB 393, was introduced to the State Assembly on Tuesday and heads to a public hearing next Wednesday. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Sarah Gabler. Last time on Out of the Box, host D Star spoke with DJ Payne One. The Beatmaster has produced for a number of big names, including Schoolboy Q, Rick Ross, and Nipsey Hussle. This time around, we'll hear their thoughts on social media, making it in the music industry, and more. What's up, everybody? This is your host, D Star, here with DJ Payne One. DJ Payne One, Platinum, Multi Platinum. Multi Platinum now, multi-platinum, yeah. Multi Platinum, right? How many Platinum Plus you got now? Just two. But hey, <laughs> you said that super nonchalant. That put me. That puts me into the into the multi platinum. Right, circle, but you so. said that too nonchalant. Just to <laughs> I want more. I don't know what you. This want man me to is very humble. He's a very humble. If you've never had a record out, if you put yourself in the music business, we're peers. Right. Like Drake is huge, but I'm his peer. We're we're on the same platforms. You know, we're not at the same levels, but we're we're part of the same ecosystem. So you'll come up to me or someone else that you perceive as being in a good position and say, I'm not even going to pretend to want to get to know you. It's like, give me, what can you give me? How can you benefit my career? It's like, that's not no hello. No, we don't have <laughs> no introduction. I don't know if it's the internet. When you have a social media presence, it makes people feel like they know you. I know you get a lot of that, you know. It I gives you a what, false sense of intimacy. Exactly. It throws me, when people DM me and they'll use my government name, and I'm like, wait a minute, how did you look that up? Right. I think it's kind of cool that, like, you can meet someone out and they know a lot about you, mm-hmm. and, you know, and you've never met them before. It's flattering. Yeah, I agree. Like, oh, man, you know, I met somebody um, two days ago at the play. Uh, we went to the American Players Theater. Oh, out in um, yeah, out in the sticks. <laughs> yeah, but I, it's I right by the cave of the mounds. Yeah, yeah, what uh, Spring Green? Yeah, yeah. So we were right there, and I, I met this this woman for the first time, and she was like, "Oh yeah, I'm such and such as roommate, and you know, congratulations on the new baby, and I seen that you guys got married, you know, and da da da." I'm like, "What's your name again?" <laughs> like it's like, "Oh yeah, you never met me, but you know, I you know." I, I've been, I'm up to date. I know what's going on. I was like, wow, you know what I mean? Like, I I put a lot on the internet, I guess. (laughs) Because it goes both ways. Like, you're putting out positive things on the internet. A lot of people put out negative things on the internet. And then I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to give people this impression that, you know, there are gatekeepers out there because it's not like people will throw that word around a lot. I mean, there are gatekeepers. Yeah, I was just about to say, uh, there are gatekeepers. In the sense of like, if you're on the internet and you say something bad about somebody, you might think no one's watching. But years down the line, you start looking around and you're like, wait a minute. I feel like maybe I should have gotten this opportunity or why is this person not replying to me? Mm-hmm. It's because people talk. And that's not gatekeeping. That's just people reacting to something that you did. Absolutely. So I think the in the, the internet also, the negative side of the internet, it it gives us a false sense of anonymity and therefore, we think there's no accountability for our actions in that space. And there are, you know, and, and yeah, there are consequences to that. Our audience is a lot of people that's uh, incarcerated for me and incarcerated. We have a lot of uh, creative people, mm-hmm. you know, I guess the number one question is going to always be, how do I get on? Yeah, I think what I, I have this conversation with a lot of people 
I think the biggest thing is just where is your focus? Because I think what I've seen is that we're talking about, you know, music business, but really anything in life, specifically the music business, though, people who are starting out are really focused on big targets that really aren't realistic, not in the sense that I'm discouraging anybody, but they're just for what you're trying to do it's not the right place to invest your energy. So I'll give examples like a brand new artist unsigned, just trying to get music out. A lot of them are focusing on radio play and not local radio play, not like WRT. They, they want to get played on the top radio stations, the clear channels and radio is not for us. I mean, commute there's like, I, I brought up WRT. Yeah. Form a relationship with them. That's for us. Form relationships with with smaller stations if if you want to get into radio, but the Clear Channel is not playing your record, no matter how hard you try. So you may spend two years trying to get to Clear Channel, and in the meantime, you didn't put any music out and you have no fans. Same way with you know a lot of people I talk to, they want to get signed, they want to impress people who work for labels, they want to network with the you know they want to network vertical vertically they want to go up to you know a, a big a and r at a big label and it's like you you're you'll spend years of your life trying to impress those people the thing is those people are looking at numbers and for you numbers equate to fans because the fans provide those numbers the the shortest distance between yourself and those numbers is you directly to a fan slash consumer it's not going to trying to reach radio and then hitting the numbers. It's not you trying to get to the label and then hitting the numbers because that's working backwards. Authentically, if you make the music that's authentic to you, the content that's authentic to you, and you deliver it directly to fans, say you get, I, I break it down like this. Say you have a, a thousand fans. A lot of people would look at that as a failure, right? You only got a thousand fans. You know, Drake has a million fans. You have a thousand fans that are willing to spend $50 on you throughout the year, you're making $50,000. Now scale that up, provide more value, incentivize them, make them spend a hundred throughout the year. When you think about that, that's not very much. That's under $10 a month that they're spending on you. Now you make six figures off your music. That's crazy. And it seems so small in comparison to getting a major label deal. Now, if you're making six figures off your music, now you have options because if you're happy doing that, you just continue to scale up. Now you got a budget. You have a budget, you know, <laughs> but you know, also you're living a pretty good, comfortable life. Yeah. You're comfortable. And you have, you still have control over everything. You still have ownership over everything. And if you're making a thousand, you can double that. And now they're going to come to you. Exactly. And you're going to have leverage. Whereas say you're the most talented person on the planet and the label does see that. And this is unrealistic. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. It does. They want to work with you at point zero just because they see the potential in you as talent. Well, they can't justify giving you a million dollar advance. They might give you an $80,000 advance and then they're going to try to invest in you. But realistically, labels don't do that much artist development these days. So it's kind of like you got your 80,000 and they're kind of expecting you to develop yourself Maybe they, they put some resources behind you, but ultimately, you know, say best case scenario, you become a superstar. They made millions off of you and you just got 80,000. Right. So wouldn't you rather do that yourself and then say, this deal isn't right. I know my value and I have the numbers to prove it and negotiate from a position of leverage rather than someone who's just, you know, I get people 
DMing me all the time talking about, please sign me, please, I'll do anything. It's like, I don't even have a label. That's where the scammers come in. That's where those fake Atlantic Records A&R emails come in. You know, hey, congratulations, we love your music. Just send us $500 as a fee to cover A&Ring and legal, blah, blah, blah. We'll draft a contract, we want to sign you. People are paying that. There are a lot of people making great livings off of scamming Cause of artists. Because of the dream. Because of the dream, yeah. They're praying off of people's dreams, hopes, and dreams. And it's sick. It, it's sick. It's back to school week. And have you thought about a career in the trades? On this archival edition on The House Always Wins, carpentry savants Allie and John share how they got started building and how you can start your own construction trade journey. I call it housework. Hi there, I'm John. And I'm Allie, and welcome to The House Always Wins, a place where you can learn cool stuff about your house. You know, Allie, I'm thinking we should talk a little bit about what we do for a living, and then uh, let's share maybe some tips for getting into the construction trade if there's some interest. That sounds great. I started my journey as a chemist. Oh my God, wait, wait, wait. Were you like pouring things from one beaker to another? No, uh, sadly, I was one of those those chemists that read reports. Oh God. Yeah, it was brutal. It was around 1992 and I just talked my way into a construction job here in Madison. What drove your interest? What made you go, hey, I want to try this? You know, I, I had a friend who kind of followed a really similar uh, route. She was a... Uh, uh, had a degree in physics Ooh. and ended up working on a, a residential framing crew. And so I just was like, oh, I think I might might try that. I knew I was kind of dissatisfied with where I was at. Mm. And so the way I went about things by not getting any formal training, it took me years to learn the kinds of things that, that right now, as a teacher, I teach those students, you know, in nine months. Uh, I went into um, I went to a school for furniture and cabinet making, um, and then around 2005, I started working at Madison College, and I, I've been teaching carpentry full time since then, and and that's what brings me to my my present day. Wow, that's a, that's a lot of experience. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm convinced. Take my money. You know what you're talking about. Uh, so what about me? Well, I'll jump in here. My path was uh, I grew up in a family, a farm family. But I came to go to Madison to go to college, started in theater, but then ended up in the construction uh, administration program, um, graduated from that. But uh, I went into the Peace Corps, built low-income housing in North Africa, came back and went to work for a remodeling company and uh, spent 15 years there. And then I took the teaching job uh, at Madison College as well, and that's been a blast. So, Ali, what if someone has that same cubicle farm job, hates it? and yearns to work with their hands and become like us. What is out there for them? Well, um, the fact is there is a ton of opportunity out there right now. Uh, the construction trades are hiring like crazy because because frankly, people like us, we're, we're li- a, a late boomer and an early Gen Xer. I'm not going to say who's who. Right. Uh, and that, are, are we old? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I'm saying we're getting older. And um, a lot of, of people who have been in the trades are retiring and that creates a lot of opportunity for, for new people to come in. If you're interested and you wanted to get into carpentry, any of those, there's also, there's remodeling, which is working on old homes, which is what you and I both did. Um, there's also new home construction, building the new home stocks. 
uh, commercial construction. Our coworker Sandy worked commercial for thirty some years. She's building all the big buildings, uh, the, you know, the campus buildings, the all the really cool big buildings. Being a part of that can be fun. A lot of different ways you can go. Yeah, absolutely. And um, these jobs in general, they pay really well. They can be extremely rewarding. So you can earn a, a family supporting wage. Uh, depending on how you go about it, you can you can learn while on the job. That's that's basically the the premise of an apprenticeship, and you'll you'll learn a trade without getting into any college debt. Uh, I think one of the things that a lot of that speaks to a lot of us in the trades is the ability to look at the end of the day and see what you've accomplished. Yeah, I love that. That's, I mean, that's so huge. And I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I've had days where I'm like, wow, what have I done today? Um, <laughs> it's but, true. But a lot of times you do get to see like a real like accomplishment. Um, and and you can point it out to somebody. And, and, you know, frankly, that's a pretty big improvement over reading reports. Reports for yeah. the, the EPA for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you can start your own business. So yeah. that really speaks to to people who, who want to be their own boss. There's a lot of companies out there with just two, three people. And, and then the other is that there's a fair bit of job security. It's not any anytime soon that, that your job as a carpenter is going to be outsourced. What other things should people be aware of? Well, um, it is a physical job. And that is one of the things people are like, oh, my God, it's a physical job. You'll kill your body. Not necessarily true. You will use your body as well as your mind to accomplish things. You know, you'll be climbing ladders. You'll be twisting and turning and lifting and and doing all sorts of things you probably won't do in your cubicle. Uh, there's a greater likelihood that you, you might hurt yourself. But if you're careful and if you're thoughtful, you'll be all right. Um, you do have to learn to take care of yourself. And, you know, as far as the physicality goes, if you do take good care of yourself, if you stretch, do yoga, things like that, you really can keep your body in shape. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, there's there's physical stresses from sitting at a at a desk all day too. Right. So it's just different for sure. You make it a paper cut. Yeah. Well, and there's other ones too. To be fair, that's true. Um, I I do have to speak uh, about one thing that's that's very real, which is that the trades have not always been super welcoming of women or people of color. But it is starting to shift, and, and I think partly it's shifting because society's attitudes are shifting about who does what kind of work, and partly because uh, the companies, I've just seen the writing on the wall, the demographics do not favor uh, just counting on so-and-so's nephew and so-and-so's little brother to, to get into the industry. There's just a lack of white nephews out there nowadays. Yeah, the white nephews, or the farm boys, right? A lot the of farm places are looking exactly. for the, the farm boys, and they are a, they're a dodo bird of a breed, that's for sure. Yeah, so, you know, it's you and I, we've trained dozens, maybe 100 women, people of color to be, to be carpenters, mm -hmm. and we're still seeing that it's harder for them to find employment, and that when some of them have found employment, they've been harassed, they've been excluded, um, they just feel like, people have been downright hostile to their presence. And and I know that if you're that worker who's getting harassed, it's it can be really challenging to know what to do. Some people can navigate their way by deciding we're only going to pick certain battles. You're going to develop a thick skin. Maybe you give back as, as, as much as you take. You know, there's a lot of different ways of dealing with that. And uh, But unfortunately for some people, it's just, it's unacceptable. They move on. They go on to another company, and hopefully that's a better situation. And some people just leave the trades, and that is just a loss 
all around. But I guess I'd say, you know, all that notwithstanding, and I've, I've had my, my share of battles over this, this 30 years, um, I still come away. Like I, when people ask me what I do, I usually start with carpenter and follow with teacher um, mm-hmm. because I so identify myself as, as a carpenter because I've loved that work. And, um, and so if you're interested, if, it, if this feels like this, this speaks to you, what do you do to get involved? Well, you could come and take our program at Madison College, construction and remodeling program. Um, if you're also interested in going into electrical or plumbing, the apprenticeship is definitely an option, both union and non-union. You get paid to learn. You get paid to be on a job site, and then you get paid to go to school as well. Um, I think we should leave it there for today. What do you think about that? I think uh, we've got a great, uh, great gig here going on, so I agree. All right. Well, uh, if you're out there and you have a home improvement or home remodeling or a carpentry question, why don't you send us an email at thehousealwayswins at w-o-r-t-f-m dot o-r-g. It's 6.50 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. According to a study published by Michigan University, eating a single hot dog could take 36 minutes off of your lifespan. Now, Matt Treadaway would beg to differ. Treadaway grew up in the shadow of that plant and inherited his dad's love for all the things related to the bologna with a famous first name. I think you know which one we're talking about. He's surrounded by all kinds of wienermobiles, small whistles made of plastic, child-size pedal mobiles, and even plush ones that are perfect for cuddling. On a Sunday afternoon, contributor Jennifer Fields caught up with Treadaway and his vast collection in a local church basement. In this episode of Radio Chipstone, Treadaway says that for him, Oscar Meyer memorabilia is more than just stuff. It started 19 years ago. You know, my fiance at that time, you know, she kind of talked me into, I hate to say it, but disability. Because my feet, and I'm diabetic. I've had 42 surgeries. I used to be a workaholic. And I thought, what am I going to do if I go on disability at panic attacks? And so she showed me how to get on eBay. You know, and I started selling Christmas CDs on eBay. And somehow I came across an Oscar Mayer site. And I bought some whistles, and that kind of started the bite into collecting. I don't know why. I guess because you're surrounded by this Oscar Mayer stuff. Mm-hmm. I thought you at one point maybe worked for Oscar Mayer, but this is, this is outside of that. My dad worked there for 28 years. I have his retirement folder over there, but uh, I've never worked there. But every time we drive by, I just had uh, just a love for that building. Could part of it be a nostalgia and a connection to your father? When you look at these items, do you hear stories that he may have told you or just even recounting his day at work? Mm Mm-hmm. You know, he keeps saying over and over and over how the Oscar Mayer family would just, they would go through the plant and talk to the employees, and they were very family-oriented. And he just appreciated that. 
you know, they treated him very well. They treated a lot of people very well. You know, behind the plant, they put in a baseball field for the families to play baseball with the kids. And, you know, I just can't say enough for them. So then, is that part of your collecting? Because I look over here, and I don't see that you have one electronic Wienermobile. You have several. You have several large cars. It's one thing to collect an item because it has a nostalgic pull to it, but why so many? I can never get enough. (laughs) One item that I'm very proud of is over in that corner, that is the very first building that they built back in 1890. Well, that they kept adding on to that, adding on to that, and that became the Chicago plant. Over on that table there is a brick from the Chicago plant. And then that big white brick, that's from the Madison plant. I met the son of one of the two families who had purchased the, the property of Oscar Meyer, and I worked out a deal, and that to me is a dream come true. So I wanted a brick from Chicago and one from Madison. So it's not that it's the single thing that brings you joy, it's all the things that bring you joy. So is this, we're, this is a pretty good, how many items do we have here? Like ballpark it for me. That's a pretty good question. 200 maybe? Yeah, that'd be a good guess. So then is this your entire collection? No, this doesn't even scratch the surface. I have a 10 by 20 storage unit that I have most of it in, aside from the basement of where I live. Is this a collection or an obsession? Is, are you crossing a line here with this? It started out as a collection. But, you know, I've done talks of the history of Oscar Mayer, and now it's obsession. What I'm looking for now are the real rare items, something that I don't have in the collection. I have hundreds of Wienermobiles that you just see everywhere. But I would, you know, like those, the two bricks, those are rare. It's not exactly what somebody else would have. Mainheart Robbie. His uniform, I have the certificate of authenticity of that with his personal signature. How many people have a certificate of authenticity with his signature on it? That's a prized possession for me. So now how did you come across that prized possession? You know how rock bands have groupies? I have my own Oscar Mayer groupies, and to this day I have no idea who called me. But they gave a heads up of a gentleman that I knew. His whole family knew me. He had passed away, and that's how I came across that. This is a serious subculture. Yeah. Has it gained more traction since the plant closed? I think it has. It's almost like a lot of people yesterday was telling me it's like a, a reunion. The old employees come in, and they see each other, and they sit down, and they get talking and reminiscing, and... I just love listening to that or talking to them. So you're a collector of objects and the narratives. You Mm -hmm. want both. Yeah, because that's talking to somebody who actually worked at the plant or for the company. That's how I learned a lot about the history, aside from research or what have you. 
down in the basement of where I live, I have quite a few items that I just, this sounds weird, but I just, you know, my computer's down there and every now and then I'll just turn around and look at what I've got and I just, I love it. I'm in awe of what I have. I guess words can't reveal my love for the family. Yesterday, one of the family members came here and I was in such awe that I met that person. It, that made my day, it made my year, to actually meet a Meyer from the family. So, how close in proximity do you live to the plant? Half a mile. When I turned 18, I got married and I couldn't wait to move as far away from my parents as possible. I made it to Middleton. <laughs> <laughs> Were you driving a Wienermobile? Is that what <laughs> held you back? I would love to have a Wienermobile. Have you ever contacted them and asked if you could drive? No. Is that just too much for you, Matt? Yes. I would love to ride in one, but I wouldn't drive it. I'd be too uptight. <laughs> <laughs> for WORT, I'm Jennifer Fields. And that's a wrap for WORT's live local news at 6. Your reporter tonight was Sarah Gabler. Your headline writers were Peter Voller and Russ Mackey. Special thanks to feature contributors D. Starr, John Stephanie and Ali Barini, and Jennifer Fields. Nicole Alley engineered the show. Faye Parks produced this newscast. And Ms. Shali Pippen is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Be sure to stay up to date with the Warts Local News by subscribing to it as a podcast. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Stay tuned and good night.